there's no one like the Lord. And that one verse that always sets my heart aflame. He loved me in spite of myself. That's that volitional love that speaks more of the one who's doing the loving than the one who's being loved. That's Jesus. Amen. We ask you to join us this morning in our journey through the book of John. We find ourselves this morning in John chapter 4, verses 37 through 38. If you would open up your Bibles to that passage, John chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please just put those five letters together that speak volumes about our life because the one who changed our life and just shout out Jesus. Jesus. That's John chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. And the word of God says this, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. You may be seated. 
C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote words similar to these. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying what is really foolish that people always say about Jesus Christ, which is, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I will not accept him or his claims that he is God. This is the one thing that we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or a liar. He would either be a madman who believes himself to be a poached egg or he would be the devil himself. You must make your own choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's absolutely delusional. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him my Lord and my God is your choice. But let none of us come up with this patronizing nonsense about him that he is only a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us, nor did he ever intend to. So, Pastor, who did Jesus claim to be? Who does the Bible say Jesus is? Well, first we look at the words of Jesus, speaking about himself in John 10 and 30. I and the Father are one. At first glance, this doesn't seem like it's a claim to be God or a claim of deity. But all you need to do is just go three verses south of that. John 10, and look at the reaction. Look what they said. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You see, the Jews, without any hesitation, understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, and Jesus never corrects them. He says, the Father and I one. Another clear example, John 8, chapter 58, rather John 8, verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Again, what was the response, my brothers and sisters? They picked up stones to attack Jesus. Jesus here is announcing his identity by using the word I am, which is a direct application of the Old Testament name for God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 14 verses south of that, John 1.14, 
the word became flesh. This is a clear indication that the word, Jesus Christ, has become God in the flesh. Thomas, the disciple, recognized it. He declared in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't correct him. Paul describes him here in Titus 2 and 13 when he says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't correct him. Peter does the same and says, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, Jesus doesn't correct him. Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see no objection. And God, the Father of all, the primary witness to the full identity of Jesus, says, Your throne will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So we see that C.S. Lewis, his argument wasn't that far off. Jesus is much more than a good teacher. That is not an option. He is clearly what he claimed to be. He is God. If he is not God, he is a liar. And therefore, he cannot be a prophet, a good teacher, or a godly man. So, Pastor, why is this even important? Why is the identity of Jesus Christ so important? It's important because Jesus has to be God, and if he's not God, then he is not able to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus has to be fully man. If he's not man, then he can't die because God can't die. Salvation is only available through faith in Christ Jesus. He is the only way to salvation. He can proclaim, and he did proclaim in John 14 and 6, without fear of contradiction, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ is he who was, he who is, and he who is to come. As your son said to the Samaritan woman, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the great I am. He is the word made flesh. We ask you, O oh God, to show us this morning that there is no doubt that he is the Christ. We ask you, O oh Father, to place in our hearts and in our spirits a burning desire to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. Drive us today into the marketplace to compel and to call others to come and see the man who knew about all of our lives and knows about all of their lives as well. Let us see, O oh Lord, with new eyes that this world is ripe for the harvesting. And let us pray, O oh Lord, 
to the Lord of harvest that he will send us, his workers, into the fields to gather his harvest. Bring us to the moment where the workers and the Lord of harvest, the sower and the reapers can rejoice together. Let us reap what you and others have already sown. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. So can he be the Christ? That's the question. We all have to come and see. John 4.27 starts off this passage by saying these words. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled. Look, look at the words here. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? We see here that Jesus is interrupted in his conversation with the woman at the well as his disciples returned from Sychar where they had gone to purchase food. They voiced an unvoiced surprise to him. They are stunned by the fact that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Their surprise really shows the prejudices of their day. You got to remember, ancient Jewish thought held that if a rabbi should never talk to a woman, even to his wife, if he did, at best it was a waste of time. At worst, it was a diversion from the study of the Torah. It was also thought that it could be a potential evil because it could only lead him to hell. So think about it. With these kind of backward thoughts in mind, would they not be overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman? Jesus himself did not hold, he was not held hostage to the sexism and the prejudices of that day. I think when you look through all of the scripture, you will see that Jesus Christ was a great deliverer and a gracious protector of women all the way through the scriptures. And I just want to give you one example here. I want you to look at John chapter 7, verses 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11. John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to their own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that he might bring some charge against him. 
Jesus bent over and wrote with his finger in the ground, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said, Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Think about the process here. They're trying to set Jesus up, but Jesus recognizes that there is something missing in this picture. He understands Old Testament law that said if you caught a couple in the act of adultery, both the man and the woman must come to be stoned. And also, it couldn't be just by the witness or two or three witnesses. You had to catch them in the act where they were still co-joined. So there would be no doubt that it was the act of adultery. But here, the only person in the midst of them is this woman. So he contemplates as he bends down to write on the ground, and he says, anyone who is without sin cast the first stone at her. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. You know, think about the fact that those older ones who have lived longer had sinned a lot more than the younger ones. And when they had to be introspective about their entire life, they no longer had the gumption to bring that stone to throw at her. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. But look at what he tells her. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He reminds her that, hey, the charge is true. But go and sin no more. The reasons the disciples here did not ask Jesus what did she want or why was he talking to her? If they'd asked the first question, then they would have violated the law themselves by being guilty of talking to her. If they directed uh, the question to her, what do you want? Secondarily here, I think they had learned to trust the leadership of Jesus. Even when they didn't understand the teacher, they knew his heart. You know, that really works in a marriage when it comes to submission. Even if you don't understand where your husband's going, do you trust his heart? Do you know his heart? That he's for you and not against you. We see here, they restrained themselves and they just awaited the enlightenment that would come later as Jesus would show them why he was speaking to this woman. Verses 28 and 30 of chapter 4. The woman, so excited, she left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can he be the Christ? Can this be the Christ? 
They went out of town and they were coming to him. You know, whether or not this woman left her water jar there out of nothing more than excitement and haste, and she hurried back to Sychar, or out of hospitality because the text shows us that she still hadn't given Jesus a drink he'd asked for. But for whatever reason, John sees a profound symbolism here. And what is that symbolism, Pastor? He sees that this woman is now so overwhelmed that her eagerness, even though she doesn't fully understand the whole process of living water, it has already started to swell up in her and she abandons her old water jar and she renounces her old understanding and she's ready to worship God in spirit and in truth. And why does this seem right to me? It seems right because I look at her actions right after she leaves the jar. What does she do? She goes into the center of town, a place that she had previously done everything she could to avoid because they knew of her lifestyle. But now this same woman, forgetting about her past and pressing forward, she goes to tell them about Jesus and she pleads with them to come and see. You see, just from her brief conversation with Jesus, she concluded as she said, I perceive, sir, you are a prophet. But now you see a change in her attitude that she perceives him not just a prophet, she perceives him as the prophet. And with that fire shut up in her bones because of the insightfulness and the introduction that Jesus gave her at the end of that piece when he tells that the one you're looking for, you're standing right in front of him, encourages her to go and tell everybody she knows, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. You see, when the Lord captures your heart, he compels your behavior, and you can't keep it to yourself. You want to go and tell everybody you know about the one who knows everything about you. We should pick up this characteristic here from this Samaritan woman. She's become a disciple winner just because of her encounter with Jesus at this well. She had to think this, guys. If this stranger knows so much, may he not know even more. But still, when she goes and she proclaims, come and see this man, she does it with some hesitation. Why does she do it with hesitation, Pastor? Because, again, because of the social status of women at that time, she did not presume to tell men anything, even if she knew it to be true. So how does she get a point across? 
the same way a good wife gets a point across now. She leads from behind. She poses it as a question. Could this be the Christ? Even though she truly believes it is, she says, could this be the Christ to provoke them to go and see? And what happens? The townspeople go and they go and see Jesus. They take the walk to Jacob's well. Jesus is still there conversing with his disciples and they go to see the one who was sent to do God's will. Jesus is still at the well. He's still tired. He's still thirsty. He's still resting from his long journey. And all of a sudden, his disciples remember, hey, Rabbi hasn't eaten. Look at verses 31 through 32. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. They were urging him to eat because they know that their initial mission was to go into the town and to find food and to bring it back to him. They understood that Jesus was tired from his ministry and his preaching and his teaching, and he's also now dwelt there in a conversation with this Samaritan woman. And if you don't understand how exhausting counseling and preaching and teaching and ministering to people really is, you should try it just for one day. And see, doesn't it just drain you of everything in your soul and spirit? But Jesus decides to use this as an object lesson. He says, I have food that you know nothing about. Jesus is speaking in physical terms to teach them the realities of a spiritual world. He wants them to know that my mission here is more important than spiritual food. Number one, I'm here to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Look at Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into bonds, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one single hour to the span of his life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field 
which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And I love this part because you recognize Matthew is speaking predominantly to a Jewish audience. So look what he says here. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's saying the Gentiles who do not know God, the Gentiles who do not have God as their provider or protector, they need to be worried about their daily bread. They need to be worried about their clothing. But you have a heavenly Father who knows exactly what you need. So he points them with a different priority. And what is that priority, Pastor? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all other things will be added unto you as well. He's not saying that you can't have both. He's saying you got to have a different priority. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is his own trouble. We see in John 4, 33 through 34, the disciples speak to one another. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, the disciples were just like that woman. They were thinking literally. They were thinking of literal food, just like the woman was thinking of literal water. They knew they went into town to pick up something for Jesus. They got whatever they were getting from Maya, and they were wondering, has someone else given them something else to eat? But Jesus promptly corrects them, and he says, that's not the substance I'm looking for. My food is to do the will of him. Personal pronoun refers to God who sent me and to accomplish his. Personal pronoun refers to God again, his work. What is Jesus doing here? He's giving them an object lesson, but he's also giving them a spiritual lesson. He's referring to Deuteronomy 8 and 3. When Moses addresses Israel and explains God's way to them. Look at what the words of Deuteronomy 8 and 3 say. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, Jesus was focused. He came to do his Father's will. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater 
than that of John for the works that my Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bearing witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus came to do his Father's will. John 6, 38 through 39. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is focused. He came to do his father's will. John 8, 29, and he sent me Dude, and has not left me alone, for I always do what is what pleasing to him. John 9, 1 through 5. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? You know, Jewish understanding was if you were in a handicapped situation like that, you had probably done something amiss in your life and God was punishing you. Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Just stop right there. God has allowed this man to live his entire life from infancy to this moment blind. Not out of any wrongdoing himself, but only that God would use him in this moment and time to bring glory back to himself. Doesn't that make you just want to hold on? Because you don't know what God wants to do with you. You don't know what God wants to do through you. You don't know what intersection that he is placed there to bring glory to himself because he got you. And regardless of what you might have on this side of glory, we recognize that we will have a glorified body and that we will live with him forever. The passage goes on and says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I don't think we can find anybody else in Scripture that exhibits the truth of Deuteronomy 8 and 3 like Jesus has. That man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus shows that the creative will of God realize in our obedience is the thing that sustains our life. In his dealings with this Samaritan woman, he's performing the Father's will, and that was greater substance to him, greater satisfaction to him than a full-fledged meal. There is nothing that he's not willing to submit to the will of God. That's why Jesus can say without fear of contradiction, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you have given to me. Can this be the Christ? Come and see the fields that are white with harvest. 
John 4.35 starts off by saying, Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look at the turn. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Many people have tried to date this time from December uh, to January, four months of the, before the normal spring harvest. But what Jesus is really saying here, you think that the harvest is four months off, but I'm telling you, open your eyes and look right now, and you see that these fields are ready to be harvested. When he speaks of four months here, he is saying, you think a certain gap must exist between sowing and harvesting. But I tell you, because I am the Christ, I've already sown the seed and the harvest is taking place right now. Do you not see a harvest in the soul of this, this woman from Samaria? and those who are coming to see what she was talking about. He's telling us that you rely on the seasons and you rely on the weather to direct you concerning the harvest instead of relying on the Savior who is God, who is telling you the harvest is ready. He is the one that engages the harvest, and he can change the timetable. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. The reaper, or the reapers are us, the ones who are in the field as co-laborers, with Christ, the one that's bringing in the harvest, reaping the fruit of eternal life. The fruit refers to the people who are now becoming followers of Jesus Christ. In this instance, the Samaritans and the Samaritan woman. Jesus tells us whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All this is happening so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together and they might do it right now. Jesus is reminding them of what was said in Amos 9 and 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. So, Pastor, what's the picture he's painting here? He's painting us a picture of how the world was before it fell in Eden. Remember the rule in the Old Testament that you could farm for six years and then you allowed one year for the land to rest? He's saying, because I am here now, 
The land doesn't need any rest. The reaper can keep on reaping. The plowman can keep on plowing. The grapes will keep on growing. The winemaker will be overflowing with wine. Because I'm here. Everything has changed. Everything is going back to the place it was before it fell because of sin. And there will be an abundance because I am here. He paints this miraculous picture of fertility and prosperity. He wants them to know because he is here. All things are new. But pastor, what happens when the seed is sown? Isaiah tells us, in Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen to this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do we not believe what he's telling us? Does that not spur your confidence just to hang on a little while longer? Because everything that he has said will come to pass. It will not run to him void. Everything that has been set aside. That is why he says, store up your treasures where? In heaven, where moths cannot get to it, thieves cannot steal. Because everything that he's promised is going to happen. Next here we see Jesus saying in John 4.37, For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. The reference here shows a unity of life and a diversity of gifts that go with a good harvest. One sows and another reaps. And the work of both the sower and the reaper are essential. The sower labors, <clears throat> just like a farmer, in anticipation of what is to come. The reaper keeps watch that he brings in the harvest and doesn't let it lie in the field too long. Jesus and all of his predecessors, especially John the Baptist, have all sowed, even the Old Testament prophets have all sowed. And now the harvest is coming in because the Lord of the harvest is here. John 4.38 I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Doesn't this remind us of the Old Testament? 
you're sitting under palm trees and enjoying the shade of trees you never planted. You're drinking from wells and cisterns that you never dug. Jesus is sending his disciples to reap what they have not worked for. John 12, 24 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Are we willing to lay down our lives to go into the fields of plenty to be a co-laborer with the Lord? Are we willing to share the blessings, the hopes and dreams, the trials and tribulations that we have been delivered from because of this Christ to people who yet do not know him? Are we willing to go and work even where someone else is sown or to go and plant where no one else has ever gone? Do we understand how precious Jesus is and how precious we uh, have become because he has brought us into his family because of his death, burial, and resurrection? You know, John Newton, before he wrote Amazing Grace, was a rough and dirty sailor who had a foul mouth and a great appetite for rotten living. He was a captain of a slave ship, and someone placed in his hand a book, The Imitation of Christ, Tommy Kempis. And he had a good mother who loved the Lord and kept telling him about Jesus as his Savior. And when he was saved, you saw a great turnaround in his life. And he went all over England sharing his faith. And he became a pastor and he preached way beyond retirement age. In fact, he preached so long that he had to hire an assistant to stand in the pulpit with him on Sundays. He had become blind and he had lost his voice, and he could only speak in whispers. And he would whisper to this young man, and he would give the sermon. One Sunday, as he was delivering his message, he said to his interpreter, Jesus is precious. The assistant, being polite, whispered back, you've already said that twice today. Newton turned around and straining the last strength of his voice said, yes, I said it twice and I'm going to say it again. Jesus Christ is precious. The moment he uttered those words, 
the very rocks of the sanctuary rumbled. Does that not remind us of when Jesus was coming in to Nazareth and they said, hey, hey, tell your disciples to quiet down as they yelled out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he says, if I were to quiet them down, the rocks would cry out. Don't let anyone quiet down your spirit in this time of social distancing, in this time of isolation. But scream unto an unbelieving world that the God we serve, Jesus Christ, is precious. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. you your Son is precious. He's a gift that continues to give to us. Thank you for your only begotten son. Thank you for the comfort he brings. Thank you for the constraint in our behavior that he's able to obtain. Thank you, Lord, for giving us life everlasting, giving us an example to follow given us a hope that we can always believe in. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.